Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend, the magnificent Christian. Uh, it's his stage name for when he's performing his illusions. Christian, how are you, my friend? Good. I can make the critical consensus of a movie disappear. <laughs> your your most spectacular trick that you perform on stage. Christian, we are, of course, talking about illusions and tricks because we are marching on with Magic Movie Month. That is Magic May. And we are looking at another 2006 film, continuing on with our theme of movies about magicians. And that movie is, of course, Neil Berger's The Illusionist. So last week, we talked about The Prestige. These two movies came out at a similar time, both being 2006 movies. And as Hollywood occasionally does, you know, things in conversation, topics on the mind. Both of these movies were magic movies. So Christian, before you share any of your thoughts about this movie, what did you know of The Illusionist? Did you know anything about it compared to The Prestige? Okay, so I, I've, I've seen this movie before. Before I watched it the first time, I knew that it came out the same year as The Prestige and was also a movie about magicians and was also a period film. And I knew that it starred Edward Norton. That being said, before I saw The Prestige, I had heard more people talk about The Prestige. I'd almost, I'd never heard anyone talk about The Illusionist. So I knew that this did not signify whether it's worse or better. I knew that it was less talked about. That is the same for me. And I think, unfortunately, part of the reasoning there is just who was involved with these movies. So The Prestige, for example, written and directed by Christopher Nolan. Don't know if you've heard of him, but he's kind of one of the biggest filmmakers of today's day and age, let alone in 2006 when he was on the rise in Hollywood. The Illusionist is written and directed by Neil Berger, who still making movies in Hollywood, but I hope it's not too offensive to say he's a smaller name than Christopher Nolan. Of course, in The Prestige, you have actors who are still noteworthy, Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, uh, the the two leads there and the illusionist is more focused on edward norton and paul giamatti who again wonderful actors in their own right nothing about them or their skill they just have taken slightly different paths giamatti is doing a lot of tv these days i know he's on billions i believe and the the guys who made billions are actually involved with this movie which is kind of funny and edward norton is just at a, a lower profile phase in his career so Unfortunately, again, The Prestige had a little more lasting lasting power, even just in who was involved with the movie. Yes. It, it's also, there's a third film. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think we're going to be discussing the third film this month, but Scoop, a 2006 movie, also centered on magicians. Yes. I, I, I don't know what was what was in the air in 2006. Neither do I. Scoop will not be discussed on this podcast as I am not ready to wade into the Woody Allen discourse just yet. I have seen Scoop. I remember almost nothing about it, but also features Scarlett Johansson and Hugh Jackman, weirdly enough. So I have no idea what was up with them. But Scoop, I don't recall being as explicitly about magicians. There is a magician involved, whereas The Illusionist and The Prestige are movies about magic, about magicians. So it seems like they fit in better with the theme anyway. So, Christian, we now must discuss the the great artist of the great film artist that is Neil Berger. 
do you have any connection to Neil Berger? It's the first time we're discussing him on the show here. He has made fewer films than a lot of the people that we discuss on the show here, but he's been around. The Illusionist was actually his second feature, I believe. But do you have any thoughts or feelings towards Mr. Berger, Christian? He did Divergent. <laughs> that's that's your thought? Just the fact that he directed Divergent? I, I saw Divergent in my grandma's house. I saw half of the movie because I missed the first half. <laughs> that is the extent. Oh, wait. Oh, he directed Limitless. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love Limitless. Okay. All right. Now we can say stuff. I like it. There you well, go. Well, well, I, I like that one. Warming up to our guy, Neil Berger. I love it, Christian. <laughs> yeah, he has had a a steady Hollywood career, which honestly, for anybody getting into filmmaking, that's probably what you hope for, is just to continue to write and direct and produce for as long as you can. The Illusionist is his second film. He had his debut interview with The Assassin in 2002, which was a film festival darling, which enabled him to make this movie, obviously a much bigger deal. But he does go on to, to make a few movies, Limitless and Divergent among them. Also gets involved with Billions, so perhaps he worked with Koppelman and Levine on this movie, and that led to their partnership later on. Or, not perhaps, he did. And I'm saying perhaps it led to their partnership in television later. He also had a movie come out this year called Voyagers. Have you heard anything about Voyagers, Christian? I know that it's a movie. <laughs> I... <laughs> I, too, know that it is a movie, and I have not heard good things just based on the letterboxed <laughs> reviews that I've seen for Voyagers. Obviously, not a great time for the movies, as theaters are still opening back up, but that one does not seem to be making a big impact. So, listeners, if you're out there, check out Voyagers. Let us know what you think. Maybe we're doing Neil Berger a disservice here by besmirching his films without even seeing them. But... The Illusionist is one of his bigger films. He obviously is more of a, a studio hand as opposed to an auteur, but maybe that's a conversation for another time. Christian, Edward Norton obviously is a bigger deal, and when it comes to The Illusionist, he has had a pretty big Hollywood career, and he was on the rise still at this point. Or, you know, he was not on the rise. I, I take that back. He was well-established at this point. This is post-Fight Club, which shoots him onto the mainstream, and post-Oscar nomination as well. I know he was nominated for American History X, I believe. Or maybe it was Primal Fear, his debut. He's gotten a couple nominations, so I, I might be... I think it was both. Forgetting that. <clears throat> I think it was nominated for both. There you go. I should have done the research beforehand, but alas. <laughs> life got in the way, folks. Apologize for the sketchiness here. But, of course, Norton is a, is a Hollywood player at this point, And he gets to lead movies like The Illusionist. But, again, I, I just... I, I might be... I, I'll save my thoughts on his performance in this movie. Christian, how do you feel about Edward Norton just in general? Just as an actor? Do you tend to like his movies or his performances? Are you a fan of his? I enjoy... Edward Norton films a lot. I okay. I don't um I've always found that I'm a bigger fan of Edward Norton when he's supporting. Now, I I have seen a couple of the movies where he's the lead. I I will say somehow when he's a supporting character, he gets the chance to not necessarily steal the show, but you know kind of command more. So, it's that 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 obviously he's in Birdman and I love him in Birdman. I think he's wonderful in Birdman, but 
that that's overall I'm it's I, I go to an Edward Norton film not knowing what I'm going to get. I think I'm in a similar place. And I was sussing out my Edward Norton feelings while I was watching this movie, partially because I haven't seen a ton of the movies where he is the lead. And I do quite like some of them. Like, I love Fight Club, which, what a surprise. David Fincher, Brad Pitt, I'm I'm the film bro that I am. Surprise, surprise. But then you have a movie like The Incredible Hulk, which is probably the worst MCU movie. It's barely even an MCU movie when you consider consider it in the grand scope of what what is what it's become and part of that is because he just was not the best fit for bruce banner so i'll be curious to talk more about his performance in this movie as well Uh, just a few quick details here for the illusionist before uh, we dive into uh, my favorite section which of course is fun facts but as we mentioned the illusionist 2006 film written and directed by neil berger it is based on a short story by Stephen Milhauser, and there are a few other key supporting players that I want to bring up. Number one, the cinematography, as I am often uh, want to bring up, by Dick Pope, which resulted in the film's lone Oscar nomination. So there's something else it has in common with the prestige, getting some love for the cinematography at the Academy Awards. Also, music by Philip Glass, the composer of both classical music i guess classical is maybe not the right word because he's a modern composer but orchestral music and film scores alike it was produced for a a 16 and a half million dollar budget and perhaps why our guy neil berger is still making movies his movies are profitable as this brought in almost 90 million dollars at the box office so christian before we dive into our review of the illusionist you know what time it is it's fun facts time Am, am, am I starting? Am I starting fun facts? Okay, I give I it to you, Christian. Kick us off. Uh, so a uh, Japanese musical adaptation has been announced and set to run from December 2020 to January 2021 that was put on hold because of COVID. However, we can now see The Illusionist in Japanese musical setting. I saw that. I, I was wondering if you'd bring that one up. There's also some sad news to it, unfortunately, is I think one of the actors they had brought onto the production passed away which is pretty unfortunate so i know that did not help so less fun fact so not so fun fact so this movie featured the involvement of uh, american magician ricky jay who also featured in the prestige he was the magician that borden and angier worked with at the beginning of the movie so he is highly involved in these magical movies coming out in 2006 and he along with other magicians helped train edward norton in sleight of hand and other magic techniques so it would help seem more real i'll give an oscars related fun fact so both this and the prestige lost the academy award for best cinematography to um well pan's labyrinth which not a magic movie but a fantasy film so interesting in how kind of fantasy and the view of what that can be as a genre was taking place at that time Shout out to fantasy movies cleaning up at the Academy Awards. You gotta love that. Uh, Neil Berger actually has a cameo in this movie for my next fun fact. He um, is actually one of the men um, projected onto smoke when um, the inspector, Inspector Ull, tries to see how Eisenheim, Eisenheim, I can't talk, does his ghost trick. So he's he gets involved in, in, the, in the stage. So we'll have to watch it again, see if we can catch Neil Berger making a cameo in his own movie. So, 
I mean, this is barely a fun fact, but this... <laughs> Not as plentiful for the illusionist, unfortunately. Yeah, there there aren't there aren't too many. Uh, no, but the, the script was based on Eisenheim, the illusionist, an actual short story. I mean, the prestige was also adapted. So, adaptations running amok. All right. Now... This will get funky, folks, but this fun fact is a spoiler. So if, for whatever reason, you have not yet seen The Illusionist, you like listening to our conversations, I ask that you skip ahead. I wanted to share it because it's about one of the tricks in the movie. So this is a spoiler. Skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear it. Anyway, Eisenheim, down the road, starts conjuring ghosts as part of his stage show. And so the method that they assume, the inspectors assume, is involving projection of a pre-recorded image onto a hazy background. And since the ghosts that Eyes and I were conjuring could interact with the audience and the audience was asking them questions, their guess is that he likely used a different method that was actually popular among magicians at the time in reality uh, called a phantoscope, which is used to illuminate a real person off stage. And then the image was reflected off of a mirror and created a ghostly image. So that is based off a real trick that magicians pulled off, which I did not know until doing my, uh, my reading after the movie. Any other fun facts for The Illusionist, Christian? None. Well, then it is time to dive into our review here of Neil Berger's The Illusionist. So, Christian, as always, here is my opening question to you. Naturally, we have this movie to compare to The Prestige, which is unfortunate in some ways because... You don't always want to put movies directly in competition with each other. You just want to talk about them as they are. However, because these two are so similar, they came out in the same year, even both coming out in the fall, I believe. They naturally will get put into conversation with one another. So, Christian, before we get into more of our thoughts on this movie, I wanted to ask just a point of comparison between The Illusionist and The Prestige. How did you feel about Neil Berger's more CGI-oriented and spiritual approach to the magic in comparison to the practical authenticity of the prestige? It, 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 was, it was not working for me. I um, was, was not a fan. And I heard someone say that they like the illusionist more than the prestige. And I am sad I'm sad about that. Aw, <laughs> oh, Christian. It, I don't, yeah, I don't know how I feel about it either. And perhaps we can suss, it's out, boring. suss it out. It's boring. It's, it's boring. <laughs> no, no, it's not even like a, let's suss this out. It's boring. The actual magic you're talking about, you find boring. Is that what you're saying? Just because that's, that's what my question was about. Okay. <laughs> the entire movie is boring. The, the actual magic. Okay. Look, the magic, I don't care about. And that's what's wrong. And, and here's the thing. This movie needed to decide whether it was going to go for fantasy or reality. It chose to go for reality, but it didn't make me care about how the magic was supposed to be occurring. I did not follow Paul Giamatti's chief inspector in trying to figure out how he did the orange tree trick. I didn't care about the oranges. So it's, it, 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 it didn't matter. You know, I think you are putting words to how I feel about The Illusionist in that I just didn't really buy into the story and didn't fall for any of the characters. And so the magic was less interesting to me because I wasn't as invested in 
what was going on behind the scenes, how he was pulling these things off. And I think the movie struggles to commit to putting on great magic versus telling a good story. And you can feel that struggle based on how it wraps up. So I am looking forward to talking a little bit more about that with you. So before we start to segment this and and look at some of the different aspects of the movie, just in general, you said you were bored. Is this a movie that you you feel like you strongly dislike or you, you know, you thought it was fine? There are some pluses. Obviously, you know, you didn't really love it. So I'm just trying to what's what's your general feeling for The Illusionist? There's maybe a scene that's okay. I I think that this film is trying to be more than it is. It is trying to present itself as more important than it is. And there, that comes across in some of the performances. I one very much comes to mind. That also comes across in there's this like subplot about how the crown prince is trying to get rid of his father to take the throne, but no one, not much is made about it. And the romance between Edward Norton and Jessica Biel is is kind of there but their romance has never really been established or developed and the characters some of them are defined by their accent <laughs> all right all right i i'm with you on a lot of these things so i want to start to uh to to pick them apart because i think for me also shout out to jessica beale we have not yet talked about her on this episode and i'm looking forward to unpacking a little bit more of her performance but I I think I like this movie a little bit more than you, though I do agree it is definitely a step down from the prestige last week. It's it's not not great in its execution in a lot of the different areas, but there are some aspects that I liked. So we'll get there eventually, I'm sure. I do want to start with the just with Neil Berger's direction and his writing. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how. The characters weren't fully developed or the romance wasn't fully developed some of these side plots are introduced haphazardly so let's start with just eisenheim as a character did anything work for you whether and specifically no. looking at his like development okay no. <laughs> there we go i don't need to keep going <laughs> i did not care for the accent oh it's so bad <laughs> it's so bad dude oh edward 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 and, and, and I'm looking at this and I go, because he's not just doing an English accent, you know, he's trying to do like a high English lofty accent. Like the Austrian. He's trying to do some kind of Austrian accent. Which is not there. And, and so I'm sitting back thinking, stop talking. So I, oh, and, and they give me, Okay. They give me the the that weird stop motion CGI sequence of how of like his origin story, how he met that old magician and that old magician was the one who introduced him to magic and what like whatever. But uh, they never build on it. It's kind of just there. It it feels kind disjointed from the rest of the film. Yeah, it's it's really interesting when they dive into it because you know as, as you're saying it's this prologue sequence with aaron taylor johnson playing the young eisenheim so shout out to him who went on to a pretty great career thus far in the movies and it's shot with this old-timey aesthetic 
heavy, heavy sepia tone. And they use a lot of iris transitions. And if you don't know that is, they used them a lot in silent films where the camera would shrink in a circle around the subject. And then it would, yeah, silhouette. And then it would close out to a black screen before fading into the next shot or having another iris opening. So Neil Berger and Dick Pope will bring up as the cinematographer, you know, they're, they're using some of these stylistics to set the stage with this prologue, but it's really disconnected from the rest of the movie. And we hear so much about this life that Eisenheim lived, traveling the world and stuff, but it just doesn't make him that interesting of a character. It's a really bad example of telling and not showing, where we get to hear about this great journey that he went on and how he was away from Austria for many years and he comes back to put on his magic shows. But as a character, he's just sketched out and not really filled in. And that's I also not helped by the cinematography. Oh, the Oscars. They went wrong. Christian, what didn't you like? I dislike the sepia because I don't hear. Okay. I, I this, mm, the, it, it felt as though they were trying to go for like a children telling scary stories type of vibe of look at what kind of dude this is. Everything's in yellow and orange. Fine. I get it. But the story is so subdued and subtle that that it just made the film dull i don't really think it made the full the film i don't think it added to it i think actually i you know i've been complimenting you a lot on this podcast and i'm gonna do it again dull is another good word there is and not i would say dull not in that it's bland or boring although it is i would just say dull in that it's not sharp there's Again, they bring up these themes where Eisenheim is musing on stage and he connects all of his illusions to life and mystery and death. And again, just these thematic explorations that he's talking about on stage, on stage, never connect to the real world. And there's this supposed to be this great romance, this love story between Eisenheim and Jessica Biel's character, whose name is Sophie, but it happens so quickly. And then, spoiler alert, they kill off her character halfway through the movie only to spoiler alert bring her back at the end because it was all an illusion and but did that, we care that she died i mean i cared a little bit but i mostly cared because she, she like was Jessica a good got actress. dirty <laughs> yeah. yes i cared because she was a good actress not because i cared about her character jessica beale is innocent let's go and it's just decisions like that when you're writing the screenplay that just don't make sense and obviously, I think he was trying to avoid pulling the rug out from under us by having the character die near the end of the movie, and then surprise, surprise, she's alive. But Eisenheim and Sophie fall in love as kids, get separated, and they have sex like the second day after they reconnect as adults. And look, I understand that that can be how things go, but these two, like, no contact for 15 years, and then all of a sudden run into each other, and then they're in bed. And it's so poorly developed because then she dies right after and is, her character is done so dirty because obviously there's there's so much to explore with a woman in this royal system where she's a duchess and she's engaged to the prince her character but it's not explored basically it, it is is someone who is ignored her wishes are not granted when she's a child is being manipulated and mistreated by a man has sex gets slapped, gets killed, comes back at the end for one scene. That is her character. 
And it's unfortunate because Jessica Biel <laughs> is one of the more innocent people in this movie, like we're saying. You, you mentioned that you actually did like her performance, Christian. What worked it with her performance, even if the character's not her good? Her accent? <laughs> All about the accents. <laughs> her accent seemed real. It felt like she was... It felt like she was being a real person who was actually upset and not like a caricature of a person who's trying. I, I, I don't know what they're trying to do. Here's the thing. Edward Norton's character is supposed to be like faking his emotions the entire time, right? Or or basically none of his emotions are actually what he's feeling because he has a trick up his sleeve. It felt as though he was faking stuff. But we never got the the. I don't know. We never got the reality. We never got the real Edward Norton. The and, and Jessica Biel is actually saying, "Yeah, I don't want to be here." And I'm like, "Cool. I get that." I mean, look, Paul Giamatti, fine. I I actually think Paul, Paul Giamatti. Giamatti was fine in this film. And Rufus Sewell had some had some, I think, instances of this. I, I think there are one or two scenes of his that I quite enjoy, but this can be boiled down to when, when Edward Norton, after she dies, quote unquote dies and, and, uh, and he like conjures up her spirit, he extends his arm and then grabs it and then he like does, lowers his arm in exhaustion as soon as she appears and he's like so fatigued. And none of it looks real. Yeah, it doesn't. And I think that leads me to another complaint I have about The Illusionist. And I will get to the parts that I liked, never fear. But again, the magic is just so much less compelling than it is in The Prestige. And there are moments that are really cool. Like this this trick that Eisenheim pulls off where he takes a or the prince, Prince Leopold's sword unsheathes it and sticks it on stage, gets it to stand up vertically, and then invites a couple guys on stage to try to move the sword because he's talking about King Arthur and the sword and the stone and they can't make it budge. And then Leopold goes to take his sword back and he can't budge it at first before Eisenheim mysteriously lets him. And a trick like that is cool. And you can understand how they could have pulled it off on set, obviously hang it from a wire so that it's invisible on the camera, have the actors really act their butts off trying to pull it. And then eventually they, they get it back again. But they bring up that trick and not much is made of it, except that Leopold's really angry about it, which kicks off the rest of the plot, basically. And we don't ever get a sense of how Eisenheim is doing this. And you brought this up earlier, but the, the playing with fantasy versus reality that Berger introduces to this movie, I mean, the balance is just off. And he can't ever decide if he wants to go all fantasy, where Eisenheim is actually magical and he learned these all this stuff from his travels abroad, or if he's just a really great magician. And we never get to see which one it is. And I think for some people, they would say it doesn't matter. I think for me, I was just unsatisfied. Because in The Prestige, which, again, you don't necessarily want to compare a movie to another just because they're similar, but... It can be helpful in explaining my criticisms of this movie. I think in The Prestige, what's so cool is that you get to see how they pull off these tricks, how the magicians are trying to fool the audiences. And Christopher Nolan is fooling us, his audience, with his magic tricks. Whereas in The Illusionist, Berger's more focused on just being mysterious, but there's no satisfaction from the magic on screen. 
and no dissatisfaction for us being fooled by his tricks as the filmmaker. Because in the in in that prologue we talked about, in that weird stop motion CGI prologue, it made it seem just as you said that he went abroad and something happened abroad that infused him with like the dark arts. That is at one point where I thought this movie was going to go. Because it's like, okay, so he's a traveling magician. He says he's been to the Orient and he's been to other areas in Asia, in Europe. He's here now. He maybe picked up some actual magical skills. But no, it's he's supposed to be like a genius, but that's never hinted at or explored. And right. it's he more... just fools people with his tricks. We don't ever really get to see and learn more about him. I'll I'll play devil's advocate. I'll play devil's advocate for a second. At the end, where it shows that he's not magic at all, that everything he's doing is actually an illusion and a trick, It maybe it would give some people the curiosity to look back and be more impressed at the rest of the film, at all these tricks that we don't know how to pull off. But the thing is, is that... that uh, I guess it is impressive how they were able to fake the the death, but that wonder in the present moment for each one of the illusions isn't there. So I can't be waiting until the end to have to look back and think, oh, this is actually good. I myself don't even really like the ending of this movie because it makes the movie end sort of like a murder mystery because it goes for a plot twist which we've mentioned it's that eisenheim faked sophie's death and she escaped to some cottage off in the country and he joins her at the end of the movie and again the illusionist sort of has a structure where you think they might they might try to pull a plot twist because it, it starts with eisenheim's arrest and then they go back in time and they follow him up to the arrest. And then we see, haha, he pulled one over on the chief inspector. But the movie itself isn't, isn't focused on getting us invested on that twist. Because it just loses <laughs> the sense of structure that it has going on. And that, I guess, the structure is not well-defined. And it's not building towards an ending. So the, the ending, for me, was just kind of lame. Again, because it ended like a murder mystery where I was expecting this plot twist. But I actually kind of wasn't expecting a twist, which when you're not expecting a twist and then there is one, sometimes your mind is blown, but sometimes you just sit back and wonder why it had to be that way. And that's unfortunately where I found myself just thinking, oh, well, <laughs> great. Because I was not invested in the romance or the characters and it just, it felt, I guess, out out of like style and tone with the rest of the movie let's just talk about what you actually enjoyed here we go christian so i've been coming down pretty hard on the illusionist but ultimately i think i would give it a mildly positive review and part of that is because of the craft on display and we've talked about this i think i tend to be a pro craftsmanship critic and and you're more pro you know the writing and the performances and maybe i'm I'm mischaracterizing you and I don't mean to. I just mean to say that I'm the one who talks about costume dramas. <laughs> so the number one aspect of this movie for me was the music. I really loved Philip Glass's score here. And I'm not always good at, at keying into the music in movies, keying into the score. 
but this is one that I feel like I could I could return to and and listen to because it really brings out the best in the the period setting and the drama I feel and and Glass uses a, a mix of instruments really really beautifully. It's not it's not just bland background music. It's actually quite in, inventive and enjoyable. Did you have any thoughts on the score? I did not like it. Ah. Oh. No. But it's it's not because the score is bad. I think the score in a different film would have been fine. Or in a film that knew what it was doing. <laughs> so for you, it's it's not so much that the score is bad, it just didn't feel like it fit with the movie? It, it, you know how Rockabye Baby is supposed to put a baby to sleep? Yes, I do know. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, if that's what we're going for, sure. So the score was putting you to sleep, is what you're saying? It, 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 I, I, it was like a period score, which is fine, except that I needed it to be. Li- you know, I needed. We needed to put some some electric guitars in here. What? <laughs> oh my gosh, I disagree, but. <laughs> go off i guess that's what this that's what this movie needed all right so i'm i'm pro philip glass's score here christian is not (laughs) but i want to know more of your thoughts about dick pope's cinematography because i think he gets a little oh indulgent he needs to stop silhouetting (laughs) he needs to stop silhouetting you know what there are other colors besides red and yellow and i'm not just saying that I'm not just saying that there are other colors in order to, like, I don't know. This isn't the fact that it's red. It's... mm. Okay. I see. (laughs) It just felt pretentious. The score and the cinematography felt pretentious. Like, they were going for a masterful period piece um extravaganza that is supposed to delve into the difference between magicians and spirituality but the writing and the directing are not there to support the score and cinematography so in the end it ends up not working and i think is a notch against them rather than for them for me I'm just, I guess I'm just interested in your perspective because for me, the cinematography and the score felt innocent in an otherwise not so great movie and made it at least mildly enjoyable to watch. But it, for you, it's like it doubled down on the negativity. <laughs> they could have worked in a different movie, but because they're attached to this movie, they're all just in a vicious cycle of making each other worse. Yeah. Uh, There's definitely some pretension, I think, to Pope's cinematography, especially in that prologue, like we were talking about, where he's really laying on the filters and the the iris effects, etc. But I think he does, again, bring out the best in some of these these period settings, whether it's this forest where Eisenheim's Eisenheim's house is located and you, you you get to see people riding up from the shadows or capturing these just really well done well lit beautiful shots of the crowd watching the state watching the show on stage i think really elevates those scenes 
it's just a shame again that it's attached to a not so great movie so christian any final thoughts on the illusionist before we wrap the show i i guess maybe we should talk more or maybe we should bring up edward norton just final final things because because we've kind of just mentioned him in passing when we were well not really we we kind of said we weren't fans but he is the lead and i did mention how i think it, it your comment on scarlett johansson last week is 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 the same thought i have on him it, it felt as though the accent, accent is the character. was the character it's unfortunate and for me i wouldn't say the accent became the character for norton but i think he was trying so hard to nail this accent that he definitely does not nail <laughs> that he gets lost in actually creating a character because eisenheim unfortunately is just very bland and he's supposed to be mysterious he's supposed to be intriguing but he's, he's hugh jackman without any of the charisma of hugh jackman but he's not even he's not even like angier that angier has this this mean streak this obsession with defeating borden because eisenheim he gets his enemy in prince leopold who's who we mentioned is played by rufus sewell who again is just in a scene chewing villainous performance i i, I liked but their rivalry i mean they barely have any scenes together it's more just about the inspector being sicked by by the prince being sicked on eisenheim and, and told to just arrest him for something and there's there's no compelling rivalry to invest in and norton just has not doesn't have a lot to latch on to but also doesn't do much to make the character compelling beyond the screenplay again where whereas for the cinematography and the music for me they worked in spite of the movie i think norton is is brought down by the movie and continues to bring it down i see i like that they had a movie in austria because you know obviously we watch a lot of movies in hollywood like in america or if or you in London. Okay, if we have devolved into saying we like that they have a movie in austria I was I what I was going to say is that <laughs> I like that we're exploring some of these other major European cities, but if you can't pull off the Austrian or German accents, just use a British accent. We all understand that that is <laughs> the universal period piece accent. If you can't pull off the other European accents, don't try them because everybody in this movie has a different accent accent. <laughs> and it is so distracting and so frustrating <laughs> if they all had just committed or worked harder to something else it maybe could have worked but it it's it's so distracting and it's fortunate because otherwise i think vienna is a great city that i want to see more of in the movies yeah, anyway i'm done <laughs> so that's the illusionist folks mild recommendation from me if you like the craft not recommended from christian it sounds like if you do want to see it you can catch up with it on hoopla which you may have through your public library system, or it is rentable many of the other places where you can rent movies. So, Christian, we get to conclude Magic May next month, and I'm quite excited to conclude it because, number one, we're watching a movie that I remember liking and I'm looking forward to revisiting. And number two, we get to have a special guest on. I am very excited to announce that our good friend and oft-mentioned supporter, Paul Gonzalez, whose idea it was to do a month of magic movies, will be joining us next week. So, Paul, if you're out there, we are pumped to have you, my friend. I'm looking forward to talking about not only our next movie, but reflecting on this month with you, getting your thoughts to see if your dreams came true in our Magic May. The movie that we'll be discussing is Now You See Me. 
which is available to stream a couple places, nowhere major. It's available on places like Fubo TV, Tubi, which we've mentioned, DirecTV as well. And it is rentable a great number of places. Christian, do you have any, I mean, have you seen Now You See Me? Were you a fan? Did you dislike it? I have seen Now You See Me 2. And it is one of the few times I've fallen asleep in a movie theater. <laughs> I I don't know if that bears any resemblance to what's going to go on in Now You See Me, but but that is how I'm going into this. Well, I'm a little concerned because I think the first Now You See Me is really enjoyable and the second one is not as good. So I'm curious to see if it will have a negative effect because the second one is not as good. Will it color the first movie for you or will the first one be a redeeming experience? So we'll see. We'll have to find out next week with the assistance of our friend Paul. If you have reached this point in the episode, we thank you so much for listening. Christian and I enjoy watching these movies and talking about them and sharing our conversations with you. So thank you for listening. Your support means a lot. There are a few things you can do to support the podcast. Number one, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also drop us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, which help us helps us reach new listeners there. You can also drop us a line, cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. The whole reason we're doing Magic May is because Paul suggested it a few months ago. So please do send us your feedback or suggestions to that email. We do consider your thoughts on what you want us to do on the show and we would love to know what you want to hear discussed on this podcast so please do drop us an email there you can also follow the podcast on twitter at cinema drip you can also follow christian and myself though i think i'm a little more active there than christian is and you can follow us on letterboxd where we are rating and reviewing the things that we are watching christian any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home uh I don't know. You know, I am really tired. Well, Christian, it sounds like you need to take a nap. So you should go do that. And while you're doing that, I'm Scott Lentz. He's Christian. And this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.